Hello and welcome to Foothill Christian American Canyon. We're glad you joined us today and we sincerely hope that you're blessed with today's message. This morning I hope to preach to you for just a few minutes about Jesus. The message is entitled, With Us in Exile. Uh, I'm going to allow you to be seated when I start. Normally I ask people to stand when I'm reading the Word of God because it harkens back to the book of Ezra and it's a tradition that we've been keeping in the church for uh, thousands of years and it's a great tradition. Uh, But this morning I'm going to be offering commentary over these verses. I'm going to start in Genesis 3, 22, 23, 24. I'm going to ask you two questions and then I'm going to read on down in Genesis 4 to verse 7. And I'm going to stop there, but the sermon is actually covering all the way through chapter 4, verse 16. So by the time I get to verse 7 uh, and we stop for our prayer, Pastor, we're going to be maybe maybe close to halfway through the sermon. So that's the reason why I'm going to just allow you guys to set. But I want you to pay close attention and follow along with me this morning. We're starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. The message would be entitled, With Us in Exile. If I had a subtitle, it would be, That's What Saviors Do. That's what saviors do with us in exile. So is everybody in Genesis chapter 3 verse 22? Are you there? Amen. Amen. All right. Let's start right here. Reading from the New King James Version. It says, then the Lord God. Now let me stop already and point out the fact that the word Lord is written with all uppercase letters. Do you guys see that? I know the L is bigger than the O-R-D, but the O-R-D are all uppercase. If you notice the word God, the G is capitalized, but the O and the D are lowercase letters. Everybody see that you have uppercase letters there? That's because this is the word Yahweh or Jehovah, the redeeming God. And all through history, theologians have identified this with the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, words, theologians believe universally that this is Jesus in the Old Testament. It is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to preach this as being Jesus. We're not going to just take the theologian's word for it. At the end of the sermon, I'll take you to Isaiah 7, 14, and then we'll jump over to Matthew chapter 1, and I'll prove to you by the word of God that this is Jesus. But I just want you to know that historically, every theologian all the way down through Christendom has believed that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. So, Pastor, what's happening here is we are having an executive committee meeting of the Godhead up in heaven. That's what's happening. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know that God the Father used Jesus to create the heavens and the earth. Hebrews chapter 1 makes it perfectly clear that God the Father created the world through Jesus Christ. So Jesus was intimately involved in the creation of man. And he loved man consummately right from the beginning, from the very beginning. Now all of a sudden, Adam and Eve have committed a sin... And if they are allowed to continue in the Garden of Eden, they're going to live in sin for eternity. And Jesus, the Savior, says, wait a minute, we cannot allow that to happen. Use your imaginations if you like, and all the way in the august halls of heaven, here is this executive meeting of the Godhead, and Jesus is standing up and saying, wait a minute, we have to stop this, we cannot let this happen. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is already doing what a Savior would do, acting like a Savior. So look at this in verse 22. Then the Lord God, Jesus, said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. 
And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now understand the context. Jesus is talking about living forever in sin. Living forever in eternal separation from God, from the presence of God. And all the way back in Genesis 3, Jesus is saying, I cannot, I will not let that happen. I love these people. I love Adam. I love Eve. I created them for fellowship with me for eternity. I will not allow this to happen. So now look what happens hereafter. Therefore the Lord God, it's the same one, it's Jesus now. If you didn't know that it was Jesus who kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, you know it now. It wasn't the Father, it wasn't the Holy Spirit, it was Jesus who kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. So now here it is. Therefore the Lord God, Jesus, sent him out. The word sent in Hebrew is the word shellac. I've always kind of liked that because I come from Oklahoma and that's an oaky witticism back there, shellac. And if you got in a fight with somebody and they just beat you up one side and down the other, when you got home, all of your uncles would go, boy, that guy gave you a shellacking. <laughs> that guy did a paint job on you. And that's exactly what had it to Adam and Eve here. It wasn't a good thing. The Lord God, Jesus, sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He had never tilled the ground before. Adam didn't know anything about tilling any ground, but he's going to find out about it. Verse 24, so he, capital H, personification for the Lord God, still talking about Jesus. So he, Jesus, drove out the man. The word drove is the Hebrew word gerash. It's the word that later meant divorce in the Hebrew language. It means to deprive somebody of all of their personal and all of their material rights, to take everything away from them. The Garden of Eden was all that this couple had ever known. It was their home. It was their homestead. And Jesus was taking it away from them because if they were permitted to continue in this state, they would live for eternity in sin and separate from him and Jesus couldn't let that happen so he's acting exactly the way a savior would behave and so he drove out the man garage and he placed cherubim that's plural so there was more than one at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword we don't know anything about that we believe it was some kind of a laser weapon the likes of which we have never seen how many of you know that God has armaments in heaven that we don't have in Israel or in the United States of America or anywhere else just yet and so we believe that it was set up on some kind of a sensory motion sensor and so if you got anywhere near the thing you got zapped so you're not going to go close to the garden of Eden after this he put up this flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life, which is in the Garden of Eden. Now, we're ready to start chapter 4, verse 1, but before we do, let me pause for just one second and ask you, at this point, where are Adam and Eve? Outside the garden. garden. Yes, pastor. They have been sent out, in stronger language, excuse me, they have been driven out, and they have been removed from the Garden of Eden, and Jesus himself is the one who did it, correct? Correct. Right, we all see that. It's in the Bible. Now, let me ask you, where was Jesus? Adam and Eve are out of the garden. Where's Jesus? Is he out with them? Ah, there you go. All of my life, I suppose, when I was growing up, that when Jesus kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, he stayed in the garden. Because that's what a despot would do. That's what a political leader would do, but that's not what a savior would do. 
So we start in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to stop reading there. And we have three clues that show us precisely where Jesus was when we start chapter 4. Everybody, keep your Bibles open and look at this. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. This is all taking place in what later became called Adam's land. We'll see that in chapter 4, verse 11. I'll just point it to you a little bit later. We won't spend any time on it, but I want to show it to you. So Jesus kicked them out of the Garden of Eden into Adam's land and while they were there Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain and she said look at this I have acquired a man here's the key phrase from the Lord and it's all caps it's a reference to Jesus I have acquired a man from the Lord the Hebrew word for from is ayith It literally means to stand beside someone and assist them, to bear them up lest they fall over and bruise or hurt themselves. So what this word literally means is that when it came time for... How many of you know that Eve didn't know nothing about birth and no babies? Not a thing. How many of you know that Eve did not have a mama... I mean, what I understand from women, this is the way my wife was. She didn't care if the doctor wasn't there as long as her mama was there when it came time for our babies to be born. Uh, That's the way I believe women are. And so Eve wanted somebody with her to help her birth that baby. And she's not going to turn to Adam because Adam didn't know nothing about birthing no babies. So who did she turn to? This scripture says that she turned to the Lord Jesus. And how many of you also know that this was the first baby that had ever been born in the creation of God? The first baby ever born. And if you think Jesus would miss an occasion like that, you don't know Jesus very well. He is behaving exactly the way a Savior would behave. So in the Hebrew, this phrase, from the Lord, means I have acquired a child through the help of the Lord who is standing right beside me and bearing me up lest I fall over and bruise myself. Now, where did this birthing take place? Did it take place in the Garden of Eden? No, it did not. It took place out there in Adam's land. And when that baby was born, where was Jesus? He was with them in exile, wasn't he? He was right out there with them. That's the first clue. We get to verse 2. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Who taught him how to keep sheep? Who? Adam didn't know nothing about keeping sheep. His brother tended the soil. Who taught him how to tend the soil? He didn't know nothing about tending soil. Who taught Adam how to build the first farmhouse? When they got out in Adam's land and it came time for them to build shelter, somebody tell me who helped Adam build the first farmhouse. He didn't know nothing about carpentry. He couldn't drive a nail if he wanted to. Somebody had to help this man. The Lord. The Lord Lord God was with him. You're following the clues. I can see that you are. So Abel became a keeper of the sheep. Cain became a tiller of the ground. Now, verse 3. In the process of time. Don't forget that phrase because we're going to come back to it. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Here's another important prepositional phrase. To the Lord. The Hebrew word, the preposition is the word law. And it means to bring something physically into the presence of. It shows direction. And they brought their offering to the Lord. Well, did they bring it to the Lord in the Garden of Eden? No. 
No, because they couldn't get back into the Garden of Eden. If they came anywhere near the gate, they'd get zapped like a bug. So where did they take their offering to? Now, I know that I'm reading in between the lines, but what this implies is that Jesus had found another place for sanctuary. The same as he had a sanctuary in the Garden of Eden where he walked in the cool of the day. And they could come and visit with him in the evening. He had made another place. Out there in Adam's land, he had made another place where he came in the cool of the day to walk in the evening. And he had caused them to know where it was. And if Adam wanted to bring an offering to the Lord, if Eve wanted to bring an offering to the Lord, if any of the children, Cain or Abel, wanted to bring an offering to the Lord, they knew where to go to bring it. And they they could not get into the Garden of Eden. They had been kicked out. So there was another sanctuary that had been built or prepared or identified by the Lord God. And that was where they brought their offerings to. They couldn't get into the Garden of Eden. Clue number two. So now we get to verse four. And it says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat... And then you see the word and, Elwad, in the Hebrew language. And this, of course, is a conjunction, but it's meant to tie back to a precedent before. If we want to find out what the precedent is, we go back to the previous and. And that's where it has, in verse 3, and in the process of time. So these two are connected together by this conjunction. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he didn't respect Cain and his offering. And all of this happened in the process of time. Now, Pastor, what does that mean? What that means is that there was a season or a period of time. We don't know how many years were involved in this. Did you know that in Jewish history, they believe, this is just Jewish folklore, but they believe that Adam and Eve had 34 children besides these first three boys? They believe that Adam and Eve had daughters that were not named. Now, this is not biblical history. This is Jewish folklore. But they believe that there might have been several girls who were born between Cain and Abel and between Abel and Seth. There were little girls running around. The possibility of 34 children, all of this happening in the process of time. And the point that I'm making here is that this phrase is inserted in the Word of God to show us that the Lord God had been developing a relationship with the whole family here. He didn't just have a relationship with Adam. He didn't just have a relationship with Eve. He had developed in the process of time a relationship with Cain and a relationship with Abel. And if there were any girls that had been born, he had developed a relationship with them. I don't know if you can picture the Lord God bouncing some of their children on his knee in the sanctuary that he had prepared for them out in Adam's land, but I think that it would be an okay picture in your mind to structure or to restructure. Because in the process of time, he had developed such a relationship with the whole family that any member of the family could bring him an offering whenever they wanted to. Cain even brought an offering that was not the best of his goods. That implies familiarity. You guys see that? It implies an undue familiarity with the Lord God. I can get away with this. He loves me so much. The Lord loves me so much. He's not going to do anything to me. I'm not going to bring the very best of my goods. I'm just going to bring something else. And I'll get away with it because I know the Lord God. And I know that he loves me too much to do anything to me about this. Clue three. Do you guys see it? All of this relationship was developing in the process of time. And where was it happening? In the Garden of Eden? No. It was in exile. He was with them in exile, Pastor. Because that's exactly what a Savior would do. That is exactly what a Savior would do. 
Now I'd like to read verses uh, 5, 6, and 7, and then I'll pray and preach for a few minutes. We're making great progress here. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Jesus, he said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? And then he offers in verse 7 a precept that has not been countermanded in 6,000 years. Never countermanded. Not in any of the dispensations of time has it ever been countermanded. Not under the coming of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus and the grace of Jesus, never countermanded. When the dispensation of grace ends and we come to the time of final consummation, this has never been countermanded to this day. There's no record of it. Here's what he said in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. If you do well, will you not be accepted? It's called a rhetorical question. The answer is supposed to be so obvious that everybody can just see it immediately as soon as it's read to you. Jesus is telling this boy who had just killed his brother and who was going to be forced out of Adam's land because of his sin. I don't care who you are, Cain. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you go in the earth. I'm telling you now, before you get away from here, that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you go, if you'll call on me, if you will just call me, I'm your Savior. I always have been. I always will be. And if you will just call me, I'll come to the ends of the earth if I have to. I will find you. And I will save you. I will find you. And I will save you. No matter where you're at. No matter where. I don't care what you do. Can, can you guys get the measure of this? This is called a precept in the Bible. Precepts are little rules to live by. You can take these precepts and you can pull them right out of the Bible. Like in 1 Corinthians where it says, God is faithful. Will not suffer us to be tempted above that we are able, but will with the temptation. Also make a way of escape that we might be able to bear. It's just a huge long verse, but right in the middle of it, it just says, God is faithful. That's a precept. He always has been. He always will be faithful. He'll never let you down. And in this precept, this little rule to live by, which has never been countermanded, Jesus himself told all of the sons and daughters of Adam, I will never care who you are what you are, where you go. I just want you to know and never forget it. If you will just call me, call me, call me, and I will come. I will find you, and I will save you, because that's what saviors do. And for 6,000 years, Jesus has been with us in exile. Now, I'm going to take you through verses 8 through 16, but we're not going to read all of those verses. And so let me just pray and then preach for a couple of minutes, and then we'll start to draw this to a close. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of the word thus far. And you've opened up our eyes to see what I hope is a true and accurate historical picture of the Garden of Eden. And now we understand that from the beginning of man's history, from the beginning of mankind, we have always had a Savior who has never, ever neglected us, not once. He's been true and faithful for 6,000 years of human history. He never will be unfaithful. He never will be untrue. And we have His identity written for us in the code of the Old Testament. It is the Lord God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is our Savior today. And from the beginning of time, He has always done exactly what saviors would do. And that's leave everything to come and find us and save us if we will just call on him. I thank you, God. I thank you for that with all my heart. In Jesus' name, I pray. Open the rest of this word to us for your glory and for our sake. And we praise you and thank you for it. And everybody said with me, amen. Amen. Now, let me preach for just a couple of minutes here. We have a president election just coming up. We're, we're, we're a little over a week away. Presidential election. And I want you to know that presidents have always wanted to be more than just a president. They want to be a savior, but they never amount to that. Uh, I remember in, I believe, the second, President Obama. Now, I do not speak ill of presidents. Uh, whether you vote for a man or not, when that person is elected, they become your president. And you have an obligation based on the books of, uh, book of Romans to pray for them daily. And I pray for my president every day. And I have since 1976. I call their names in prayer. I pray for them every day. For God to save them. For God to open their eyes. For God to use them to save our country. I remember back in the second State of the Union address, President Obama stood before both houses of Congress. And in his speech, he said, right now, our country is falling into the hands of special interest groups and career politicians. And America will rise up to reform. And when that happens, I want you, both members of this house, to know that when our country rebels against these houses and rise up to reform the United States of America. I will stand with the people, he said. I will leave the party that backed me. I will leave the political action committees. I will leave the power bases. And I will stand with the people. Now, this is called populism. That's what it's called. Uh, in all of the histories of our presidents, Pastor, we've only had maybe three who were actual populists. We go back to Abraham Lincoln, and he was a populist. And we come forward in time possibly to FDR and then to Ronald Reagan after that. And these were men who actually meant if they needed to leave their political party, they would leave it. If they needed to leave their power base, they would leave it. They would stand before the, ca uh, the cameras and they would tell the entire United States of America, you elected me to be your president in order to save this country, to do this or to do that. Now this congressman is trying to stop me. This senator is trying to stop me. But I'm going to stand with you. And then the people would rise up. This is called populism. Very few of them ever make it because presidents are just politicians. That's what they're, they are not saviors. They're just not able to make themselves do what a savior would do. They do what a president would do. One of the funniest jokes I ever heard by a politician was a guy that stood up and he said, some of my friends agree with this and some of my friends agree with that. I agree with my friends. <laughs> well, okay, now we know. When he's over here, this is what he agrees with. When he's over there, that's what he agrees with. He's anybody's dog that'll hunt with him. That's what he is. That's not what saviors do. Uh -uh. If you want to be a savior, you have to be prepared to leave your power base, to leave your backing, to leave everything that you've ever known, everything that you've ever used. If you have to walk out through the doors into exile with your people, you will do that because that's what a savior does. Margaret has known from the beginning that she's not my Savior. I have a Savior. Margaret's not Him. She's my companion. She is my best friend. 
We ride the river together and we have for all of these years, but she is not my Savior, never has been. And she knows that. And I remember years ago, I've never totally understood exactly what this means, but she said, Lonnie, I just want you to know that I will go with you all the way to the jumping off place. That's what she said. Now, I'm not sure where the jumping off place is. I haven't figured quite out where the jumping off place is. But she said to me, I will go with you all the way to the jumping off place. But then if you decide to jump, you're on your own, Jack. That's what she told me. (laughs) So I understood, okay, I have a wife, but she is not my savior. She's my companion and my friend. A Savior loves the people so much that he will leave his power base. He will leave his political party. He will leave absolutely everything, all of the trappings that were associated with his rise to power. He will leave all of that in a moment, in an instant, if that's what he needs to do in order to save his people. And then I remind you again what Jesus did. You know, I've always pictured Jesus staying in the Garden of Eden. Uh, I think the reason, Pastor, that I've always thought this was I grew up with Seventh-day Adventist picture Bibles. I don't know if you guys, they are the best picture Bibles in the world. My uncle, uh, Elder Kenneth Cox, if you watch any Seventh-day Adventist TV, 3ABN, he's on TV all the time, and he is a marvelous preacher. This is my, my dad's little brother. And uh, when he was going through college, he sold these picture Bibles to get enough money to pay his tuition and get through college. And my dad, his older brother, would buy everything he was selling, trying to help him to get through school. So we just had stacks and stacks of these picture Bibles. And I remember to this day opening up the picture Bible for Genesis, and there is this beautiful picture. But Jesus, I didn't know that it was Jesus, it's the Lord God. He's standing in the middle of the garden and he's pointing towards the gate. He's got this mean look on his face. And Adam and Eve are slinking through the shrubs trying to get to the gate. And there's an angel behind them that's prodding them with a sword to make sure that they get out there before somebody slices and dices them. And that's always been my picture image that Jesus drove them out of the Garden of Eden because that's exactly what a dictator would do. I mean, the Garden of Eden represented creative perfection. All of the good stuff was there. A dictator's not going to leave the goodies to save the people. He's going to stay with the goodies and let the people go. But now I read the scripture more closely and I discover that that picture image is not correct at all. That when Adam and Eve put their arms around each other and they walked out of the Garden of Eden, Jesus walked out with them. Because that's exactly what a Savior would do, isn't it? And when they got outside of the Garden of Eden and those angels were locking up the gates and setting up that flaming sword, as they watched all of this happen, Jesus stood there and watched with them. Because that's exactly what a Savior would do. He's walking with the people he loved. He's watching with the people that he loved. And then, Pastor, when they began to weep, because I believe they did, the Garden of Eden was the only home they had ever known. They didn't know anything else. And now everything they had ever known was being taken away from them, and they're being driven out into exile, out into the barren reaches of the earth. And while they're standing there, I believe both of them began to weep. And as they began to weep, Jesus began to weep with them, because that's exactly what a Savior would do. He walked with them when they walked. He watched with them when they watched. He wept with them when they wept because that is exactly what a Savior would do. And what does that tell us about Jesus? I'll tell you plainly what it tells us about Jesus. It tells us that He loves us more than anything in all of creation. 
He left the Garden of Eden. Understand that the Garden of Eden represents creative perfection. It symbolizes creative perfection. And on the day they were driven out of the Garden of Eden, Jesus walked right out of there with them. Why? You have to ask yourself, why? Why would he do that? The answer really is a simple one. It's because the Garden of Eden was an empty place without Adam and Eve. It was empty. It was an empty place. We don't know where the Garden of Eden is to this day. And the reason why we don't is that when God closed it up, Jesus never went back again. Why should he? Adam and Eve were not there. You see, it wasn't uh, the cool of the evening that brought Jesus all the way from heaven to the Garden of Eden to walk in the cool of the day. No, it never was that. Not once. It was Adam and Eve. That was the reason why he came, Pastor. It was Adam and Eve. He had the cool of evenings in heaven where he came from. It wasn't gurgling, bubbling brooks. He had those in heaven where he came from. It wasn't the wonderful sound of wind through the pine trees. He had that in heaven where he came from. What was it that caused him to come in the cool of the evening and walk in the Garden of Eden? It was Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, to the best of our knowledge, based on biblical history, Jesus never went back. Because the Garden of Eden was an empty place without us there. Couldn't care less about it. Without us there. And then now Jesus came and died on the cross. Think about how Jesus was mistreated. How he was misused and abused. And yet prophecy in the scripture tells us very, very clearly that Jesus Christ is still coming back again. Why? Why in the world would Jesus ever come back to a place like this? One theologian described the earth as the dirt clod of the universe. When God sent anybody to earth, he was sending them to the lowest pits, to the lowest place, so that he could redeem everybody from one extreme to the other. And the Garden of Eden is an empty place without us there. Heaven, heaven is an empty place without us there. And so now Jesus is put on the cross, killed, murdered, Raised from the dead by the power of his Father to prove, to establish that he was who he claimed to be and that he does have the power to save us from our sins. That he is Emmanuel, he is God with us in exile. That's who he is. And he goes back to heaven and now we hear in prophecy that he's coming back here again. Why in the world would he do that? This place stinks. And the people who manned the earth stink and were rebellious and arrogant and obnoxious. And yet here he's coming again. Why? Should be obvious to you by now. He wants us. It's because of you and you and you and you. That's why. You and you and you and you and all of you, everybody in this room, you, sir. Jesus is coming back again because he loves you more than all of creation and without you, heaven is an empty place. That's how much Jesus loves you. So let's bring it up to where we are here today. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 through 16, we have Cain who has killed his brother Abel. And so now Jesus is faced with the same dilemma that he faced with the parents. 
It was necessary for him to drive them out of the Garden of Eden or they would live for eternity in sin. Now Cain has killed his brother Abel and he did it in Adam's land. And it's going to be necessary now for Jesus to drive him out of Adam's land. Now there are not really one exile here. There are four exiles in this text and let me show them to you briefly. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and they were driven out into what we call Adam's land. That was the first exile. Now why do we call it Adam's land? Look in verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. God speaks to Cain and he says, So now you are cursed from the earth. And in the Hebrew, the word that is used there is a peculiar word. It is the word Adama. Adam's land. Adama, A-D-A-M. A-H, the land of Adam. Adam also means blood, the land of blood. But the easiest translation is Adam's land. So there we have where they were cast out. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden into Adam's land. Genesis 4 verse 11. This earth which has opened its mouth and received your brother's blood from your hand happened in Adam's land. Now look at verse 12. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And the word earth in that verse is not Adama. In Hebrew, it is the word Eretz, which means the rest of the earth. He was kicking him out of Adam's land to dwell in the rest of the earth, the third exile. And you remember... Cain cried out to the Lord. He said, please, don't do this. Don't do this. I can't stand this. I will not be able to survive. That is far too vast. It's far too broad. It's far too barren. There is no way in the world I can survive out there. Please, you've got to be merciful and help me. And so the Lord God says, okay, instead of casting you out into the rest of the earth, I will put a mark on you so that the people who now will be able to find you will not kill you. And I will allow you to go, this is in verse 16, to the land of Nod. Do you guys see that? The land of Nod. And the word Nod in Hebrew means exile. They went from the Garden of Eden to Adam's land, from Adam's land to Eretz, the rest of the earth, and from Eretz to exile, the land of Nod. Four exiles in the history of this family. And now, beloved, 6,000 years have passed. And we are the offspring of Adam and Eve, the children of Adam and Eve. And what have we been doing, Pastor, for 6,000 years? What have we been doing? We have been doing the same thing that Adam and Eve and their family did in the beginning. We have been going from exile to exile to exile and to exile. From trouble to trouble to trouble to trouble. And in the midst of all of this, That precept that Jesus gave Cain in chapter 4 verse 7 has never been countermanded. Jesus still stands beside the Father in heaven and he says, All of the children of Adam and Eve, listen to me. Those of you who have gone from exile to exile to exile to exile, listen to me. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I'm telling you, I am your Savior. I love you more than heaven and earth. I love you more than all creation. And I'm telling you, if you will just call, call me, call me. If you need me, call me. I am your Savior. And I will come wherever you are. I will find you. 
and I will save you. And Jesus has been doing that for 6,000 years. With us in exile. With us in exile. Jesus doesn't want to be in the Garden of Eden without you. And Jesus doesn't want to be in heaven without you. He wants you to be saved. You have a Savior today. And he knows how to save you and he does his work very well. I said at the end of the sermon I would prove to you that Jesus is the Lord God. He is Emmanuel. And I want you to turn just quickly in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. This I think is probably one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Turn there just quickly. Let me read it to you. This amazing passage says this, Therefore the Lord himself, and I want you to notice that the word Lord is not in all caps. It's not all uppercase letters. It's capital L, but it's a lowercase O-R-D. That's because it's not referring to Jesus here. It's referring to God the Father. God the Father himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And who can tell me what Emmanuel means? God with us. With us where? Wherever we are. Wherever we are. He's with us in exile. Though we go from exile to exile. Did you know that you could leave this sanctuary today and go into a further exile than you're in right now? Fall deeper into sin? And even if that happens, Jesus will call to you wherever you are. And say, if you need me, call me. And I will come and find you and I will save you. He is God with us. Now in Matthew chapter 1, and it's appropriate that it be in the first chapter of the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to start reading at verse 20. It says, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That's Isaiah seven fourteen, Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He always has been and he always will be. And when Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, it was Jesus who went with them because that's what he needed to do to save the people that he loved. And when Cain killed Abel and he was driven out into the land of Nod, the land of exile, it was Jesus who called to him and said, even though you're being driven from my presence, if you'll just call me, I will answer you and I will come and find you wherever you are and I will save you. Then after Seth left and went out into Eretz to build his family and that generation passed away and the next came and the next came and the next all the way through that dispensation and the next and the next to this Sunday morning where we are here today. Everything over all of those years has remained the same. Jesus is our Savior. He loves you more than heaven and earth.
And no matter what you've done, no matter where you go from here, if you ever need him, all you have to do is call on him. And he will come and find you. And he will save you. Because that's what saviors do. Amen. Appreciate your patience with me today. I think I will close the sermon with a story that happened in our family. This, to me, is one of the funniest stories that I've ever heard in our family. And we have funny stuff happening in our family all the time. But my, my, my youngest brother, my little brother, has a bunch of kids, slew of kids. And now they're having kids. And so his, one of his daughters, Michelle, has, I think, five or six kids. And uh, the, I don't even know if he's the youngest one or not, but his name is Jace, right? His name is Jace Lafferty, Jace. And Jace uh, is one of these hyperactive kids. You know, they're, they're, I think every family has at least one. They're, they're very intelligent. They're just like super bright. And so they're like a buzzsaw. That's how they go to sleep. They just fall over sideways and go to sleep. This guy, this guy was racing motorcycles when he was four years old. And he drove his family nuts because he was really sharp. He was really bright. But he had a horrible, horrible temper. And he got so angry at his parents. Whenever they wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do, I mean, he was furious. And he wanted to hurt his parents, especially his mom, because she was always the one telling him that he couldn't do what he wanted to do or go where he wanted to go. He just couldn't hardly stand that. So one day when he's only four years old, maybe five, five years old, she had told him that he couldn't do something that he wanted to do. And he was so mad, he thought, I'm going to hurt my mom. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to make my mama suffer. I can't stand this. So he come walking into the kitchen where she was working. And he folded his little bony arms. And he looked up with defiance into his mom's eyes. And he said, Mama, Jesus is no longer in my heart. That'll hurt her. That'll make mama cry. She loves Jesus. That's going to make mama cry. Now, I don't want you to get angry at Michelle. I want you to understand she's a very young mom. And so she's just learning the ropes. And on top of that, this little guy had the ability to just really make her mad. Children have the way of doing that from time to time. And he could just make her angry. And this set her off. When he said that to her, it just set her off. And so she looked down at this little defiant child, which she loved more than life. And she said, well, 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 if that's true... You're going to die and go to a devil's hell and you're going to burn for eternity. And while she was saying this to her little boy, his defiance was just bleeding off. You know, his eyes were getting as wide as saucers. <laughs> and his little hands dropped down and he drooped a little bit and he thought for a second. He couldn't believe his mom said that to him. And then he looked up at his mom and he said, okay, he's back now. <laughs> I love that. He's back now. What I love about that story is two things. Number one, it's absolutely true. And number two, it's just that easy. It's absolutely true and it's just that easy. Jesus sent us a message. Jesus himself. It's all the way back in Genesis 3. But it comes from Jesus himself. And Jesus said, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, have you got the message now? If you call me, no matter what you're in, no matter what the trouble is, no matter who's beating up on you, if you will call me, I will come. I will find you. And I will save you. And he's very good at what he does. He saves to the uttermost those who come to God by him. And when that's done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you can lift your head, you can throw out your chest, and you can tell the whole world 
He's back now. And it'll be true. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful congregation here today. I'm so privileged to have the, the opportunity to preach about Jesus Christ. I believe with all my heart that you are the one and only Savior of the world. That you are the Son of the living God. And he has empowered you through your sacrifice to save everyone who believes. And so my heart's desire, Father, is for every person in this sanctuary to be saved today. Those who have never been saved, those who have been saved but who have fallen from grace, have slipped away. Jeremiah called it backsliding. The Apostle Paul called it falling from grace. Whatever, if our relationship with Jesus Christ has been broken... We want it to be restored. We want it to be healed today. We want every person in this house to be able to say honestly, truthfully, he's back now because he is. And so it's time for me to go, Father. But before I do, one last gentle reminder by prayer. You have sent us this message from heaven that you love us more than the Garden of Eden. You love us more than all of creation. You even love us more than heaven itself. And that's why you have already moved heaven and earth to save the least among us. You love us just that much. And I want to thank you and praise you for that. And my heart's desire is that every person in this house will take advantage of that saving grace wrought to us through the love of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, every head remains bowed for just a second, please, and nobody's looking around. Is there anyone in the sanctuary who's not presently living for God? You're just not serving Jesus Christ, but you know in your heart that you need to. You need to live for God and serve him. In your heart, you know that he loves you more than life itself. You can feel that. It's called the drawing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is drawing you to the truth that Jesus loves you more than life itself. And it is right for you to live for him and serve him all the days of your life here. So if you're not presently living for God, but you just want to make that decision right now, I'm going to just make a turn. I'm going to do an about face and I am going to live for God. I'm going to take Jesus up on this precept that if I call on him, he will come and save me. I'm going to, do, I'm going to take care of that right now. Then I want you to slip your hand up so that I can see Bishop Cox. I'm just I'm not living for God, but I intend to. I'm going to by the grace of God. Is there anyone in the house? All right, I'm hoping then that everyone here is born again, that you're a Bible-believing Christian. And I would like to ask you all to stand. We're going to turn the service back to our pastor. But before we do, everybody just please stand. If you're saved and you know it, shout amen. Amen. The scripture tells us that we're supposed to lift our hands in the sanctuary and bless his name. That's in Psalm 134. The Apostle Paul also said in 1 Timothy 2 that he desired that all men everywhere would lift up holy hands to God without wrath, without doubting. Every time we lift our hands, it signifies one or all of three things. One thing it symbolizes is uh, submission. If uh, the police walked in through the back door and stuck a gun in our nose, we would raise our hands, which means, okay, (laughs) you got the drop on me. It's a sign of submission. It's also a sign of affirmation. If you're in a class 
and the teacher asks a question and you know the answer, you raise your hand, which means I affirm. I know the answer to this question. So raising our hands means affirmation. The third thing, the one that I love the most, when we raise our hands, it is a symbol or a sign of affection. Every time one of our children, or now in Margaret and I's case, our grandchildren, and now we have a great-grandchild on the way, and it's about time. (laughs) Whenever they want us to pick them up, they raise their hands. Have you ever seen a little child come up to mama, daddy, grandma, grandpa, and they raise those hands? That means I want you to pick me up. I want you to hold me. It's a sign of affection. Every time you raise your hands to God, it means one of those three things. And sometimes it means all three of them at the same time. I surrender. I affirm that you are my Lord that this is the right thing for me to do and man I love you and I want to be loved by you Jesus loves you more than life itself and everything God has created and I think it's right for us to return that affection to him with uplifted hands so I'm asking every believer in the house if you would just lift your hands with me in the sanctuary and let's bless his name and thank him for his amazing love and his saving grace Heavenly Father before pastor comes we are lifting our hands in the sanctuary as you have instructed us to do and we are glorifying you and praising you for your amazing grace we are not only praising you for the salvation that you've given us but we're also worshiping you for who you are we thank you God you are so wonderful you are everything we ever imagined that God could possibly be and so much more and we just want you to know in our own way though it be feeble it is our own personal way that we adore you we magnify you and praise your name forever in the church world without end amen and amen